We're uh, continuing our series here in the Gospel of Mark, and we titled this series Leaving a Mark because there's marks that we want to leave here on this earth, accolades for what we want to be known for, and at the same time there's marks in our lives, wounds, uh, that we try to get rid of, turn away from, forget about. And all of us, all these solutions of, uh, the answer to all these problems that we're really looking for is really found in who is Jesus? What does he mean to us? And so we turn to Mark chapter one, I'm, just, I'm sorry, Mark chapter two, verse one through 12. Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. And if you're able, can you please stand and rise as you hear the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And we, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us. As the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. So just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have regrets? How many of you guys have regrets? Anyone? Anyone have regrets in their lives? I think we all do, and if you don't, you, you're, you live a wonderful life. The thing is, we all have regrets. Everyone has them. And the thing, thing is, you wish you, you did more of something, and, and then there's the things that you wish you never happened. Everyone has regrets because we all mess up. And if you are able to admit this, then it also means there's guilt that's close by. Guilt. It's all around us, really. There's this uh, researcher, this woman by the name of Brene Brown, and she put it this way. She said that guilt is something that you've done, but shame is something that you are. And central to this idea is guilt. Guilt, it's everywhere around us. It's either like this 100-pound waste on your conscience and where you're functional, but it's exhausting. Or it could be debilitating, like a parasitic 
uh, insect just eating you from the inside out. We all have to live with guilt some way, somehow. So the question is, what do you do about your guilt? What do you do about your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? You can drink, you can travel, you can shop, you can work, you can do a bunch of volunteer hours, try to become a better person. But at the end of the day, the guilt is still there. Because according to the Bible, we don't just mess up in life. We are, what the Bible says, we are in sin. And this, my friends, is what brings about guilt on so many different levels. And yet only God can remove our guilt. Only God can remove our guilt. We're going to look at three things here in our passage. That it takes, there, it, there's a presence of a committed community that we all need. Secondly, there's a conviction of what we truly need in our lives. And last of all, how do we carry on with guilt? How do we carry on? These three things. Let's look at the first part. A committed community. Verse 1 says that after some days, it was reported that he, referring to Jesus, was at home. Jesus was trending in the social scene of Galilee as this miracle worker. And so the, the word got out, the news got out, and this is the exact kind of publicity that Jesus didn't want it. So Jesus lays low for a couple of days, hoping that things will die down. But somehow, the paparazzi finds out. Jesus is back home. And this home, probably a reference to Simon Peter's home. And this time, the crowd is even bigger than before because there's not even room at the door. In the middle of all this bubbling, bubbling of all these people, in the midst of all this, you find a paralytic, paralytic person who wanted to be near Jesus. Paralytic. I remember when Kathy used to work with kids, children who have autism, uh, she used to tell me, I used to always refer to them as, uh, used to say things like autistic kids, and she'd kindly uh, educate me in telling me, oh no, you've got to separate the condition from the child. It's not autistic kids, it's kids who have autism. You don't call a cancer, a cancer a person with cancer as a cancerous person, it's a person who has cancer. It's, important, it's an important distinction. These labels, they can flatten out people, dehumanize them in a certain sense. Right here, you have the paralytic. There's no name, there's no gender, there's no face. All you see is the condition. That was his sole identity. And yet according to his society, his context, no one could look beyond his condition. He had no means to contribute to the society and for that matter, no one cared. The paralytic, that is all you are. And here he is, desperately wanting to be near Jesus. And his condition makes it impossible for him. Except for the fact that there are a dedicated group of four men willing to make this happen. Who are these guys? What, are their, what is their relationship? It's strange because verse 3 just says it's four men that carry this paralytic man. They could have been brothers, maybe, perhaps. Maybe a group of sons carrying a father. Or it could have been just random strangers just wanting to do this one act of kindness. No one can take credit here. Yet all that matters is that these four men 
cared enough to bring this person to Jesus. I guarantee you, if you think about your own faith journey, there was a group of people that had to bring you to God. A group of people. It took many people to bring you to God. It's a mom or dad who prayed over you. It's a grandparent who sung old hymnals to you. It's a mentor, a Bible study teacher who guided you. A friend who just simply listened to you vent. A coworker who invited you to church or maybe to a Bible study. All this to say, it took a whole community to bring you to faith. And it takes a whole community to bring someone to God. Here's the reason. Not a single soul in this crowd, not a single person even had an ounce of compassion to make room for this paralytic to come in. This is like, this is how apathetic they were. This is like a, a bunch of handicapped parking spots being hijacked by able-bodied people who don't really need them. And yet, this doesn't stop the four men. Instead, verse 4, they removed the roof above him, that's Jesus, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Here's what's happening. The four men have to lug this guy all the way up to the roof. It's not even clear whether they had staircases, back, or staircases for this house. And yet they had to not only carry the paralytic, all four guys, all the way up to the roof, whether they're stairs or not, but once they get to the top, they have to, they have to somehow shovel and dig a hole through the hardened clay of the roof. They have to dig, all the, dig the roof out. And they do all this under the ray and the heat of the Palestinian sun. That's a lot of work. That's messy. I mean, keep also in mind here, this is Simon's home. Right? This, is, this is Simon Peter's house. This isn't just a patch-up job. It's not like they had home insurance back then. They made this big hole, a big mess, just to get this one paralytic man through. You know what this shows us? To bring someone to God is a strenuous task that requires a whole community. It requires the church. Even God himself works within community of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to provide so great a salvation for all of us. It's going to take the whole church to bring a person to God. It's just too exhausting to do on your own. Too exhausting to do on your own. Think about it. Even when you know God, you can be so resistant, and yet how much more so when someone doesn't know God? Bringing someone to God, it takes great effort. It's strenuous, but it's also messy. It requires shovels to dig through the layers of unbelief and sin. Because people are messy at the end of the day. People are messy. Someone was sharing with me how at a particular church there was this visitor, and I guess this visitor was somewhat on more of the conservative side of, on things. And as this visitor uh, uh, went to this church, uh, this particular person witnessed people smoking in the church parking lot. All just nonchalantly smoking. And in alarm, the visitor quickly went to the pastor and reported to the pastor, Pastor, there are people out there smoking. Do something about it. The pastor says, well, what were they smoking? And the person responds, well, they're smoking cigarettes. The pastor just simply says, oh, that's... That's pretty good. You should have seen what they were smoking before, back then. This is, this is an improvement. God's working in their lives. 
People are messy, is the thing. But it doesn't mean God is not at work. One person put it this way, that there are really three things that can never really change. One is your past, second is the truth, and third is you. Guys, I can't change you. I can't change you. At best, I can modify your behavior, but I can't change your hearts. I can tell you what sin is, I can tell you who God is, I can tell you what grace does, I can bring you near God, but only God himself can change you. It's a messy process, but God is ever so committed to you and to this world. So we labor together to bring people to God in Christ. Because in our commitment, we pray leads to the conviction of what we all really need. Which brings us to the second point here, conviction. Once the paralytic makes it through this hole, verse 5, Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Time out. If you went to your healthcare provider with a broken foot, you asked them to diagnose it, you show them what's going on, and they simply turn to you and say, you know what, I know the problem. Your sins are forgiven. You would want your copayment back. You would cry out malpractice. Like that is not what we came to the doctors for. And yet, I wonder how Silicon Valley would approach this whole problem. Like, I'm, I'm imagining Silicon Valley, they think, oh, for goodness is sin, what, what's that? What this guy needs, we need to build prosthetic limbs with AI technology. We, we gotta get the best medical staff to put in super stem cells to, to put it in his spine. And once all those things get figured out, he'll be good as new. He just needs to transcend his own condition. He doesn't need forgiveness. He just needs to become a better human, somehow, with all this technology. It's sin, it's the problem that Jesus saw. See, in their cultural context, what they thought was if a person, uh, they believe that the physical condition is the direct result of your spiritual. And so for someone to be paralyzed this way, they thought this guy must have offended God deeply. It's a sin issue. But with our modern reading, we think, why would this be a sin problem? This is not a sin problem. And yet here lies the issue for our entire world. What is sin? There's this theologian named Simeon Zal who wrote this article on how the doctrine of sin has been troubling within this modern age because as he's realizing with his students, he says, you know, they think sin is judgmental. You shouldn't push your morals on someone else. And everyone should just be free to do what they want. So this, because of this, this ethos, the whole language of sin has some sort of disappeared altogether. But what Simeon's all observe is that it's not so much that sin has disappeared, but instead, it's been given a new language. A new language. In one area he points out, it's become medicalized. We call it mental health. Let me pause here, because he says he's not criticizing or questioning the mental health field. He thinks it's all helpful. He thinks it's good. 
But he argues this, and here's the quote. He says, there are certain problems that arise when we view the things exclusively in, in, in medical terms. In particular, the very real consequences of our psychological problems on those around us. It is one thing to say, don't judge me for being depressed. My brain is broken and I can't hope this. This is true. But what about the fact that my depression also means that during these periods of personal darkness, I am an absent father to my small children and I, I am simply unable to care for their needs. Saying my brain is broken doesn't change the fact that my children get hurt, feel unnoticed, unloved, and wonder if it's their fault. What about anxiety? The fact that it can be, and often rightly should be, called a disorder doesn't mean that it doesn't make life miserable for the people who have to deal with the anxious person. It seems to me that it is helpful to understand such brokenness as one of the many consequences of the fact that all human beings are operating under the universal condition called sin. The universal condition called sin. Which brings me back to our original question. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Or as verse 7 puts it, who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes, they question in their hearts. These are highly respected religious leaders. They operate under the assumption that if we are good enough and we just become better human beings, then you don't have to worry so much about sin because God has told us what we need to do. Just be better people and your sin is dealt with. We just need to improve our human condition. But sin is not a condition to be improved upon. It has to be forgiven. It has to be forgiven. Why do you question these things in your heart, Jesus tells them. He reads their mind literally. The scribes just want to learn a few things, just become a better person. Don't ruin this thing that we have already going on. But Jesus says, no, I, I came to forgive sin. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? The point is this. They are both impossible. Both require divine power. Only with healing, you can actually see the results. While with forgiveness, you can only hope and wonder. Jesus alone has the authority to do both. And isn't that our human dilemma here? That we're so used to people over-promising while they under-deliver. And yet Jesus is making the case, I promise and I will over-deliver. What do you do with your guilt? Because the conviction is, if the conviction is, I just need to be better, that's, that's just guilt management, that does nothing. Or, or we can opt for, I need forgiveness. And here's the thing, the world can't function without some degree of forgiveness operating in our lives. I know this for a fact. I have driven on your roads called the 880. It's a terrible road with reckless drivers. I'm convinced if there's no sense of forgiveness operating, everyone's car would be on fire. We need some degree of forgiveness in our lives. If we had no concept, everyone would be ruined. 
there's this podcast I've been, I, I listened to. It's called The Apology Line. And this, it's the idea of a guy in Manhattan who did this social experiment. And he goes under this pseudonym called Mr. Apology. So he created this hotline where people could call in and they could tell this phone or this voice message everything that they did wrong in their lives. It's just a free hotline. And what appealed about this hotline is that everything would be anonymous, nothing would be reported. He did this in Manhattan. Thousands of people called this hotline. Everything from infidelity to, to racist thoughts to uh, you know, like beating up old people, like that, that, that type of stuff, it was all confessed on this video recorder. And in one of the episodes, one person dials in and says, you know, I think this is such a great service. And he starts laughing like in this evil laughter. And he says, you know what? I need forgiveness. You know what I need forgiveness for? I'm going to come get you. I'm going to take you out. That's what I need forgiveness for. I had chills listening. I had to stop listening altogether. You know, for us, that might not be some of the things that we feel guilty for, but I wonder if there was an apology line, what will we dial in? Because guilt is so pervasive in our lives, whether we like to admit it or not. I see the rise of this. We can feel guilty as parents for not doing enough for our kids. We can feel guilty about how often we call our parents. The rise of ethically, ethnically, ethically sourced coffee beans and clothing, like, it's interesting. Guilt is woven into that. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Because you can't manage it on your own. Guilt is not something you can bear. It's consuming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus gives us the line for our guilt so that we may actually be able to carry on. Which brings us to our final point here. Carry on. Verse 10 says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man. It's a divine title attributed to only God himself. But this language of the Son of Man is also the reminder that he's a man. God became man to understand the human dilemma. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice something here. There's no rehabilitation period. There's no rehabilitation period. When you don't use your limbs, right, for the longest time, you have atrophy. So you've got to re-strengthen, relearn how to take these small steps. But here is that the simple command of Jesus, he's made well. When God forgives, he doesn't just place us in rehab as if he needs to, uh, he needs to, to see, oversee uh, in this indefinite period of time to see whether we're really serious about his forgiveness or not. Are we really serious? Like a sort of trial period. That's not how this works. He redeems us body and soul. That you don't have to spend your life making up for what you've done. You just have to believe what God has done for you. We are the paralytic at the end of the day. You and I, we are the paralytic. Unable to get up on our own. Unable to make ourselves right with God. Someone has to carry us. 
People look down on believing in God because they use this metaphor, it's, it's, it's a crutch. Jesus is a crutch for you to believe in God. That's a crutch. In other words, excuses for why we can't just be better. But this metaphor, I believe, is not entirely accurate. Believing in God is not a crutch. It's a life support system. The excuses for why we are not the way we should be don't work when ultimately we need to be excused for the guilt of sins. Guilt cannot change us like grace can. Who can forgive sin but God alone? See, in this question lies the answer. It's a reference to Isaiah 43, 25, where the prophet Isaiah says, I, that's referring to God, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. How can God not remember, you know? How is it possible for a divine being who has perfect memory, we're talking about someone who has perfect knowledge, so perfect memory, how can he forget anything? I used to like going to this city called San Francisco. It's a pretty cool city with lots of great eateries, cool cultural things to look at. I loved going until I got robbed. And it changed my whole perspective, my memories there. I remember now more of the dirty streets. I remember more of the obnoxious giant fans that were everywhere. I remember these things more, all because of one bad experience. It reshaped my past. For God not to remember our sins doesn't mean he's forgotten, but that he sees our past in a different light. The scribes charge Jesus with blasphemy, a capital offense deserving of death. And yet Jesus did nothing wrong. He came to forgive sin, even if it meant carrying our own. Jesus became blasphemy on the cross for the guilt of our sins so that we no longer have to question in our hearts whether we've actually been forgiven. The cross is the worst memory that God can ever have so that he looks upon you with favor. That's the meaning of the cross. My daughter still asks me to carry her every day. Carry me, those are her words. And with those words, she stretches out her hands, longing to be held. The problem is she keeps getting bigger, but I keep getting weaker, so it makes it harder for me. But nonetheless, she holds up her hands saying, carry me. A gesture of both surrender and belonging. Is this not the posture of grace? To surrender the guilt we cannot atone for. To belong into the arms of the Heavenly Father. But I also like to add one last aspect to this. Arms raised as an act of amazement that God can be this kind to us. That God can be this kind to you. If this is the case, the question is not, what do you do with your guilt? But the question is now, what do you do with this gift called grace? What do you do with this gift called grace? Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, as we come before you, guilt surrounds us. 
whether it's a dark cloud that we cannot remove or the guilt that we persistently ignore because it sort of nips at us, doesn't matter, it's still there. As we're reminded in the cross that you have carried away our guilt, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Would it change us only by your power, only by your spirit, only by your words, to be reminded that you have called us to rise and walk with you, Jesus. Teach us what it means to obey you by faith every single day, to live in this joy, wonder, and excitement that our God can be this good to us. May we not waste this gift that you have presented called grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.